This. Hello, this is Ernie. Ernie, uh, this is Ernest. How are you doing? Good. Is there an echo, or is that two of you? No, <laughs> that, this is Ernest. Oh, hey, Ernest. Oh, yes. Okay. Can you hear me? Okay. Anisha, are you there? Yeah. Yes. Anisha, are you there? Oh, hey. Mm. Yes. For convenience, you can you call do have me an echo. Ernie and. <laughs> we have two. So we, you can call him Ernest and me Ernie, uh, to John. hopefully. Uh, simplify it. So anyway, welcome then, as our very first guest on the, uh, actually no, second guest. We had David Gleason, but our first uh, special guest as an interviewer, interviewee on the Two Earnest podcast. I appreciate your willingness to jump on our uh, grand experiment and um, participate in this discussion. So uh, do you have any idea why you're here? <laughs> Well, I was asking myself that question and decided that uh, just parachuting in commando was was the way to go. So, I would I would love some insight. Sure, so would we. So the way we got here is uh, Ernest is a friend of mine from my Apple days, and a few couple years ago he uh, approached me about this crazy idea for saving the world, and this happens to me fairly often. And usually I give people a bunch of homework and they disappear and never come back. Uh, Ernest, to his credit and my chagrin, actually did everything I asked of him, which kind of gave me an obligation to follow up with him. And this began an extended conversation, which turned into a podcast, which turned into a zigzag project, which is a six-step process for kind of figuring out how to follow your dreams and align them with your principles. And where we ended up with, in the midst of a very large chaotic mess of visions and passions and goals was a shared agreement that um, better documentation um, or a better way of thinking about the data we use to run civilization could be the fundamental uh, paradigm shift needed to move to a more humane society. Uh, that's a Is that a fair summary, Ernest? Yes, sir. Right. And so in the midst of this, I said, you know, hey, we should like find some people we can talk to in this space. And then this week, you and I had a conversation about your company. You can share as much or as little about that as you're comfortable with, Anish, um, about how one of the things that is essential to getting full value from your tool or one of the problems you can help organizations solve is how to help organizations uh, reconcile conflicting data ontologies. And so there seemed to be an odd resonance between the sort of societal problems that Ernest and I discussed and the organizational problems you are tackling. And so the hope was that by enabling this conversation, we can achieve some mutual enlightenment. Well, I'm all ears. And I have to tell you that uh, the coincidence is more odd than you may imagine in that I am extremely interested in the design or inability to design societies and and better structures for governance and interaction. And we can go, you know, as deeply or as shallowly into that as you wish. At a very high level, I would say I think a lot about cathedrals versus bazaars. So centrally planned architectures versus organic architectures. And in particular, I, I have 
taken a liking to the, the work of the Austrian economists, Mises and Hayek, Hayek, the, the Nobel mm-hmm. Prize winner, because they had a lot yeah. to say about what can and cannot be designed. And, and I saw in the description for the podcast this concept that can we, what, can, what do we know from Apple design that we can potentially apply to society? So um, I'm more than ready to dive in. And I guess very quickly, just to address the, the open thread, what we do at Quilt is really help companies to make smarter decisions faster. And we've had to invent a whole new vocabulary in some sense for working with data because we're all on terra incognita in terms of the volume of data and the velocity of decisions that are required. And so we are in this difficult position of really needing to describe something that doesn't exist yet. But to your point, explainability and provability for data are extraordinarily important things. And boy, they sound impossible to achieve, but one of the very, very simple on the ground things that teams can do to better document their decisions and understand why they are doing what they are doing is a simple readme for data. And that is something that we have been doing for the past five years. And it really grows out of this conviction that we had that, hey, wait a minute, there's already a distributed, organic, scalable method for developing code. What can we do to take the metaphors from the world of code and bring them to data? And that was kind of our philosophy of managing data like code. And we spent the last five years experiencing the agony and ecstasy of how data and code are similar, but yet maddeningly different. So that's just a 10,000 foot view there. And uh, you and I have had so many good personal conversations that I'm sure it will transfer to the podcast. Um, may I jump in Great. here? Please, Ernest, please. So, so uh, Anish, you said you went from data to uh, to like a, a macro data type, like, uh, you know, uh, data has to have a readme to describe itself. So I believe in that too. Um, I, more like in software, like software should be able to explain itself. That's why the current AI that I hear about machine learning, to me, that's, you know, we use, we use those words to describe that process, but it's not intelligence. It's not, it's just uh, formulas, right? That, you know, you have a, a different level, different strata of the formulas that in the end they do something, right? But those formulas don't know what they're doing. The machine cannot tell you, hey, um, this is a cat because it has whiskers, and blah, blah, blah. No, it, uh, the machine learning cannot tell you that. It just, it's a black box. So my view is like, if we need uh, smart technology to interact with people, it has to um, uh, use the language that people use. It, it should be able to do this. Okay, we made the decision, the machine made this decision because of this and that and blah, blah, blah. But you, we have to get to that level before we can think about in, intelligence, AI. Because, uh, yeah, we, you know, uh, the human is always part of there that because because uh, you have to train the models and you have to you know make sure that your training is correct and all that and you have to feed it oh by the way you have to feed it a whole bunch of uh subjects you know to so that the machine can learn even 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 the uh what is it the uh, the that there's a name for that the uh intelligence that you know there's one intelligence and then there's another one and they both kind of arrive at the same thing uh it's kind of like a conflict something 
Uh, but anyway, there's oh, like, I uh, think I know what you're talking. Adversarial neural networks, or there you go. You thinking about exactly that. okay. Yes, so that's how we get you know a, a, a really useful uh, solutions to problems. Like that's how they learn to navigate a game, or or that's how a car uh, finds out uh, about a route. You know, using that adversarial model. Um, and, and I guess it's a little bit closer to how humans might think, but not close enough because you still can't. The things or the model that comes up cannot explain to you why you made the decision unless, you know, we have logs, but that's not the same thing. As Tesla can, can attest to it, that, you know, having a bunch of logs actually could be a problem in, in, the, machine, in the car because the, at some point, oh, no, no more space for, for uh, logs. So, you know, the driver, the owner, has to go to the dealer, and I don't know what they have to do to fix that. But uh, I, you know, that's a, a year or two ago that that happened. So uh, we have to be smarter because the logs are for the geeks, right? You know, the people who wrote that. Oh yeah, I get that. See what that happened. But normal people, they, you know, it's it's hard for them to understand what the logs mean. If even if they have access to the logs. First, they have to have access, which is weird because this is my car. How can that, why can't I see locks? Like I have an iPhone and Apple decide, no, you cannot see the lock. There's, there's programs that you can use to. Whoops, did we lose someone? Ernest, are you, are you still there? I think we lost Ernest. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. We lost him somewhere in the logs. He he, he was <laughs> he, he was mining copious logs and and eventually was eclipsed. Well, I, I, well, I think he was dissing the iPhone. The iPhone may have listened in. And uh, said, uh, careful, careful about dissing the iPhone when you're using one, Ernest. It might be taking its revenge. <laughs> I know. Yeah. So sorry about that. That that's, I don't know why this happens, but this might be my cell phone service, which is uh, Yahoo based. Is Yahoo yes. is Actually, Verizon through Yahoo. So anyway, I was in the uh, where was I? You were in the log. In the log. What you were saying is that logs in the are log. for geeks. Yes. Yeah. Logs are for geeks. And okay, we can ha we have that. Then we have the actual operating system, uh, which you know we have the open source uh, things. We have Linux, which again is mostly for geeks. Some, but it's you know they're trying to make it more accessible to normal people. But you still have to deal with, uh, you know, the geekdom of, you know, uh, 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 the uh, different um, frameworks that they use to present the user interface. They have one of the three letters. Uh, anyway, they have a bunch of them, and they compete, and then people can install and configure those things. But again, you have to be a geek to do that. So I think we need a kind of like a smart system administration agent that can do system uh, this kind of task for the user and communicate to the user in in a uh, uh, the language that the user expects like why did you um, not have uh, you know not like this happened to me uh, the phone was not charging even though it was plugged into a charger thing it wasn't charging and I saw that because I saw the the mark of the gold meaning it's plugged in but the percentages didn't change. So why did the phone say, hey, you know, uh, there's a problem charging, blah, blah, blah. No, you just didn't, didn't do anything about that. I have to discover that thing, and then I have to like, troubleshoot it. The phone should have helped me do that. 
And one last thing is see when it comes to documents, when it comes to people who write documents for other people to read, we have this problem of uh like Ernest mentioned, contextual context and the writer might have a whole bunch of context to deal with when writing when when Z is writing the document that with a powerful editor or uh, uh, software that helps the writer uh, compose and build this document it's, it's like almost like software but it's, it's a document um, that contains a whole lot of information about what the writer is writing so that when the reader gets it the reader also has context uh, because of what the reader knows or what the reader has done or what the reader is doing or what the reader is reading about. So all those contexts are things that, you know, if done well, we can use to compute uh, the output that the reader is, is seeing. A good example uh, we talked about earlier today, Ernest and I, uh, there's this term, what is it, uh, active device. So a bunch of groups in a company or many, or many several companies may have this term active device to mean many things. You know, an active device, in my case, right now I have two, I have an Android phone, an iPhone uh, XR, and I have a, an iPhone that is dead because it doesn't have power. And Apple also stopped updating it. So there's just in this small case, there are many uh, types of active device. So you have to have a context to go with that. So that if a reader that is reading about um, um, deploying some software uh, and and it, uh, it has to do with what machines are active or inactive to like uh, deploy that. So that definition of active inactive is one thing, but then there's other types of uh, definitions. Uh, an active device would be one that has the correct profiles or profile to operate, and an inactive one is one that doesn't. So, you know, all those things play a role, but then the themes, like Ernest and I were discussing, fell, fall in love with that term. So they might love active device so much that it's like nobody can tell them, no, I don't, you should use something better that is more, you know, uh, uh, understandable. No, they, uh, Stick to to, the, to that terminology, and that's good for team cohesion, you know. And rah rah rah, let's go. But it's not good for the user, the actual people who use the stuff, right? They see active device over here and active device over there. They're all, all confused. So in a world where this uh, Ernest was calling this uh, what is it, smart document or my document, and, and in that world, a document is something that a writer create and build and puts in puts information into it and then our, uh, there's a computing system uh, and then when the reader reads it the reader can even ask queries of the document you know they so what do you mean by this or what is the definition of this and that and the document itself will say this is it you know it's not Siri it's not uh, Alexa but it's a document Parsing for a document, uh, parsing and, and knowledge adding system that will give the reader exactly what the reader needs, depending on the reader's context or various contexts and culture, and you know, can go into that too. But that's the gist of that model.
Oh, but and also, you know, we have like uh, Anish, you were saying, uh, applying the concepts of coding into data. Well, I'm like uh, uh, programmers have for years have had con uh, things as coloring, right? You know, this is it's color because this is a class or a method, whatever. But English, we don't have that. Why? Why not? You know, there should be one color, adjectives another color, so that people can read it quickly, not have to just learn, get lost in the text. You know, when you read, you know, at a high level, that doesn't matter to you. But we have uh, young people, we have uh, non-English speakers, non-native English speakers who might have trouble with the constructs of English and, and other things that if we make it easier for them to read, then, you know, people will just be able to perform tasks faster. So that's another thing that I'm doing. Uh, thinking about a system whereby uh, you can really identify parts of speech in sentences and even kind of get a little understanding of what we're talking about so that when the definition appears the first time and the reader might have jumped in over that definition, you know, all the mentions of that term should be able to link back to the definition. You know, now you have to like, oh, so I this term, I didn't see it. They have to go back and scan the document to find it defined. But, you know, I think in, uh, you know, uh, the term should be bold, for example, like to find, it's easy to find the first time that it was used. But more than that, it should be, uh, the document should be smart because you don't want to throw all kinds of links throughout the document to link back to it. So the, the reader, the document, and I'm talking about the, uh, the software that the reader uses to read the document, has to be smart so that they can format the text to their level. Uh, they might, oh, I don't want to think that's coloring here, okay. Or I want uh, the sentences that are this, um, defining or, or explaining a particular thing, I want those things highlighted. You know, not the reader, the human to do the highlighting, but the actual document reader doing the highlight, highlighting, highlighting for them. So and that implies that there's uh, the machine can get, get meaning out of things, but to get that, we will have to uh, we use uh, vocabulary, dictionary definitions, and then contexts all together to um, translate between what the writer described and what the reader can read. That's well, it. I feel like I could write a book on on all of those interesting topics. I mean, there, there are a couple <laughs> of things that, that, that came to the foreground. So uh, the first was that a team, uh, an effective team, if you'll allow that term without definition for a moment, is a team that has a shared vocabulary. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, explainability is like a very deep topic. And I'm, I'm going to come back to that in a second. But the, the first distinction I want to draw in terms of what I see in organizations uh, is, first of all, information and meaning silos. So people may use the same vocabulary, but they assign different meanings to that. And you very typically see this in quarterly reports. And we know from our relationships with industry that the CEO asks for a quarterly report. And what he does is he asks three different teams to produce the same report. And, you know, they, those teams are now in a race. They may or may not know that the other teams were asked to do that work. And then he kind of gets one to three reports back and averages the results. 
So what is missing is this concept of a shared vocabulary. And this kind of starts to touch on the concept of schemas, metadata, and there's a whole discipline called master data management that kind of manages those ideas. How do you develop a common vocabulary for your organization? I guess the, the human problem I want to draw out there is that teams have a lot of what is called tribal knowledge. So in other words, there's a lot of information that is recorded in people's heads, but mm -hmm. doesn't actually list, list or exist anywhere in the real world. And so the very first simple step when we talk about bringing companies or teams or even individuals to a shared vocabulary is for us to start to capture the tribal knowledge on paper. And now we immediately run into a problem and that's that people are lazy. And so there is kind of this collaborative journaling between people and individuals to see how much automatic documentation you can append to the data. So that's, that's one piece. The second piece, I'm also deeply skeptical that we'll ever get to full explainability. And I guess I'm just gonna introduce two very broad findings and then we can drill in wherever, wherever the two of you wanna go. So the first is an observation about formal systems. And it's from Gödel, and it basically says that there are an infinite number of true statements which are not provable. And so in the formal world, we may, in some cases, never be able to do better than a constructive result. That's the first observation. Second observation is about informal systems or people. And uh, what if you read Hayek very closely, the fatal conceit especially, he says he makes First of all, let me observe what the fatal conceit is. The fatal conceit of central planners throughout history is the belief that the optimal course of action always comes from reason. And what he observes is that there are a, a very large number of structure-creating processes, uh, cultures, institutions, language, that people do to generate the order that we call society, but they don't know why they do those things, and they will never know why they do those things. And the reason is that the, the culturally received behaviors have survived a process of evolution and they just turned out to be useful in practice. And people may not or may never know why they do what they do. So uh, those are the three bombs I, I wanted to drop. One about tribal knowledge, second about the limits of formal systems, and then the second about the limits or the nature of informal systems. And, and we can dive in wherever, wherever you, you two would like to go with that. So I think, um, let me introduce a couple of terms, see if I can uh, structure the conversation a bit. One of the things that uh, Ernest and I have been talking about, you know, Eunice, Ernest, as you may have noticed, is a very utopian thinker. He really, this is why, he, uh, you know, you can tell the Apple streak, like, this is how the world ought to work, because we are passionate about making sure that users have the maximum amount of information available so that they can be flourishing. Um, I'm much more on the, um, uh, the pragmatic side is like, okay, what is the the thing that we can build easily to find out whether or not anyone agrees with us? And when I look at our decision, I think there's two different things that are really important to tease apart. One is that we want to have documents that are universally readable, that they're both human and machine readable, so we can extract as much data from them in a well-formed way. And that's sort of the low bar. The high bar is this idea of being universally understandable, that I can approach a document from whatever context and it, the, the reader will sort of fill it in for me. And that aspiration of being universally understandable is infinitely hard, right? In some sense, it means like you have to understand everything about the context of the intent of the reader and the intent of the author. And we can never get there, but we can approach it with better systems. 
And I think that goes to this issue of explainability is sort of, can you actually understand what I mean? And I think kind of this idea of culture is this idea of shared context. And within a shared context, uh, we have a shared understanding of what these words and actions mean. And the further you get from that specific shared context, uh, the more effort is required to achieve understanding and the greater risk of either not understanding or achieving a fall under, false understanding. We still, are you, are you guys with me there? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, did I lose my, did I lose my audio? Are you able to hear me okay? We can, I can hear you. Yeah. Let me shift out of here before my daughter yelled at me for interfering with her guitar lesson. Um, There's a couple so things I can, I can oh, yeah. go ahead, Ernie. Go ahead. Well, no, you go I ahead. just wanted to riff. So, so the first is, you know, strong overtones or undertones of Ted Nelson's Xanadu project. And, you right. know, I guess he, he came up with the original ideas for hypertext. I'll just introduce one mm -hmm. distinction that he created called transclusion, which Ernest mm -hmm. started to go towards, which is, hey, when I reference an object, I want to see kind of where the original reference came from. And Ted was deeply, is deeply disappointed by how hyperlinking ended up on the web because that was just kind of a blunt pointer as opposed to the actual object or the actual original definition. So chance transclusion is, is kind of one line of thought that, and, and I guess his general vision for hypertext is one line of thought that, that we can pursue. The second is uh, something very interesting that we know from cognitive science, and that's that I don't know that mental ease is universal, but let me introduce the concept of mental ease. The cognitive scientists tell us that people think in a pre-linguistic form that is called mental ease. And if mental ease is kind of like an LLVM for meaning, then the problem of creating meaning or, or projecting a meaning from one form into another would be kind of like a, a compilation or a cross compilation problem. Assuming that mental ease, mm -hmm. you know, is even expressible or could be something that uh, a computer computer could grab a hold of. The the third concept, so uh, the transclusion, mental ease, and then the third concept, which, which may be useful, is this idea of level of detail. So one of the things that we do frequently in computer graphics is we build MIP maps or level of detail maps. Let me give you an example. Uh, if you, you know, any, any game where there's a, a world terrain, you, when you're viewing the trees from 10,000 feet or from an airplane, let's say, in your game, you really don't, the, the variation and difference in colors in the leaves is actually not that important. And what we are able to do is to save an enormous amount of work by saying, well, this is at such a low level of detail that we can skip most of the rendering. So why is this important? Well, an outline for a document is already kind of a level of detail. And, you know, in the dream, I think once again would be that instead of having a discrete mechanism, you almost have a continuous mechanism where you can zoom as far out of the document as you want and get the digest or zoom as far into and really see the minutiae and kind of tease apart all, all the arguments. So yeah, what can we do with mental ease, transclusion and level of detail? Let me, uh, uh, okay, you, you, welcome to Griff on that, Ernest, if you want, otherwise I wanted to go in a different direction. Uh, well, I, uh, Anisha, I'm a deep, admirer of uh, Ted Nelson and I studied his videos and his ideas and yeah I that's kind of what got me into this uh into this frame so yeah I uh yeah you know I'm sad that his uh project hasn't panned out the way as he wants but uh maybe we can do that maybe we can really 
uh, explore all those concepts that he tried to do, you know, years ago and make it into something that is, is reality. Yeah. Or maybe and, we and that, will end up as bitterly disappointed as he was. <laughs> well, that, that, that is my job. This is my job is to try and figure out what is the thing that can be done that Ernest wants to do, right? And this is the tension he and I live with. So this is the interesting thing about Ted Nelson for me, which I didn't learn until quite recently, was that the reason he came up with hypertext was his vision for networked improvement communities. Are you familiar with this term or this concept? No. So the idea is that we have a community, like, you know, a bunch of like programmers say, right? And then there's an improvement community. There's like the, the, the engineering manager or the architect who says, you know, okay, it's not just that we do the work, we wanna learn how to do the work better. So we come up with standards, we have training, whatever. So there's a, a group of people who are not just worried about doing the work, they're worried about how to do the work better. And then what you find mm -hmm. is that in, in sophisticated fields, those people are connected into a network of other improvement communities. Uh, so that they talk together and they are able to uh, learn from each other. And then on top of that, you will have, ideally, um, a, sub, a improvement community for that networked improvement community, like, like the, uh, the ACM, like let's say is sort of our, the networked improvement community. And then there's a team at the ACM that says, how can we help all these other improvement communities learn and propagate knowledge better. At least in theory, that's how professional development is supposed to work. Uh, mm -hmm. Ignoring all the politics and legacy uh, egos and things like that. So I believe the motivation for Ted Nelson doing hyperlinking and translucent was the idea that could we create this improving communities of improving communities to basically accelerate human cultural and mental evolution, if you will, that we can actually improve the way that we learn how to do the things that we care about doing. So that's kind of the, the vision, as I understand it, of, uh, of, of Ted Nelson. And that part of it uh, definitely resonates deeply with me more than all the sort of the technical terminology. And the interesting thing for me that Ernest and I were talking about in our first season, how on the one hand, we really like the idea of local autonomy. You want people to be kind of able to experiment and iterate and innovate in their own way without some sort of totalitarian system around them uh, telling them what they can and can't do. On the other hand, one of the, 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 there's two failure modes for that. One is that a small group can decide that they want to um, oppress their members. And you wanted people to have some sort of transparency where if they're being really abused in a healthy way, that they can kind of get out and that they have a culturally meaningful way to ask for help and to have some uh, visibility there. And on the other hand, you can also have groups that then end up, you know, trying to oppress others outside the group. And you need to have some sort of mechanisms for communicating, like these are bad actors, in a way that is meaningful. And one of Ernest's visions, of course, is, you know, humanity spreading out throughout the solar system, where you really have literally spaceships of different people evolving and iterating in their own ways. Um, but still tied together in some sort of global culture that allows us to be this network improvement community rather than sort of dead-end uh, subcultures. And so the question I've been asking is very similar to the Hayek question, is what is the uh, common denominator that can bind these communities together into some sort of co common culture without being oppressive or imperialistic? And so the, the, the thought experiment I'm playing with is, what if we had a data trail as kind of the thing that we all agree to do? It's like we can run our cultures and our societies, our companies, whatever, however we want. 
uh, in principle, but to participate in the global culture, we just agree that we repeat, we report, uh, we manage our transactions using this common format. So you can do whatever you want. If you, it's the lowest level of your tribe, you can do whatever you want. But as long as you interact with other tribes, uh, you can you report this in a commonly readable format, and that we have. And in fact, the purpose of the shared global governance is purely to manage uh, the standards for reporting uh, of these things. And so this is the, the, the fantasy I have, I called it the continent of Sophia. And that continent of Sophia, uh, the thing about this continent is that they always write all their contracts and agreements on these magic scrolls. And these magic scrolls are like artist documents. They understand the intent and the context of the reader. And they have two properties. One is they are immutable. And the other is, um, because we are uh, the Ernest to Ernest podcast, is that they can tell that the author is sincere, uh, that this is what they actually meant at that point in time. And of course, you can update and modify it, but then it creates all these immutable versions of the document. And the interesting thought experiment was, if you had a land that only had these documents, uh, how much of the governance problem would be solved? because everyone could look and inspect what the contract was and what the intent was and whether they were sincere. And, and then the second question was, is how close in practice could you get to a document like that? Um, and when we talked about that, suddenly this made me think about Quilt, because like Quilt is this idea that uh, you have a data set, which is not just a flat data file, but it's sort of a series of immutable versions along with some sort of statement intent, and I guess your new feature workflows, that it passes some criteria, which again is a really, really poor proxy for earnestness. But it's a step in that direction that some human being went to the effort to make a statement or add a comment or at least try to pass a test. And in fact, is getting organizational buy-in on something like that a uh, at least a quantum step forward in enabling better governance, even if it doesn't solve the problem entirely? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so did this, any of that? It made a ton of sense, by the way. And mm -hmm. I, I think you've grounded the conversation a little bit in terms of concrete operational pieces that we can talk about that are immediately in front of us. Uh, so let's back out a few things there. So first of all, why is immutability important? Immutability is important because it prevents repudiation. People can't say, I didn't say this or I didn't do this, number one. Mm -hmm. It's extremely useful in the context of compliance, number two. And number three, when you take a bunch of immutable nodes and chain them together, you have a lineage. And a big part of coming to trust or understand a document is knowing where things came from. Could you talk the about second lineage? thing? Could you use that word a couple, because I'm trying to understand exactly what it, it seems like that's a term of art that I may not understand. Got it. So lineage, sometimes also known as provenance, is what is the descendancy of this piece of data? So let's take an example here. Let's say that two, let's say I create an accounting spreadsheet and then uh, Fred modifies it and then somebody adds uh, another Excel file. That journal or log is the lineage of that data. So it allows me to trace what is the history of mutations that led to the current revision that you're on. It, it's a very, and it, it's a very well-developed concept in Git. It's a commit history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in data, data tends to have, I think, more intertwingled, hat tip to Ted Nelson, kind of lineages and histories. But the second thing, in addition to this lineage, is these quality tests. And you're right, Ernie. So first of all, the, what are data quality tests? 
So they are sanity checks that test. Are, are, do the columns have the right types? Do the columns have the right, are there the right number, expected number of columns? And it doesn't have to be columnar data. You can do this for semi-structured data. You can do this for unstructured data like images. Is this image the right size? Does this image even contain anything? And these sanity checks are, are first of all, a very poor substitute for trust and meaning. But compared to what we have, what the world has, which is absolutely nothing, they're brilliant. <laughs> And, and what that means is we can start to wake up in the morning and instead of dealing with very vague, nonspecific problems, we can start to very precisely hone in on what broke down and why because which expectations were violated. So the, the data unit tests or the data quality tests include certain expectations. They're kind of like this community contract of sorts and you either pass or you fail. I yes. love this. And in some sense, it, it, in, in order to go play on the title, it's sort of a test of earnestness. Like, are you actually the thing that you, that you claim that you are? Right, I claim mm -hmm. that I'm a, 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 this data set, but like if half my data is garbage, then it's at least a strong sign that I'm not actually the thing I represent myself as. That's actually not a bad episode title, A Test of Earnestness. Um, and that's, this, it's scar tissue that you build up over time. And let me tell you how unit tests both in code and data go. Uh, you write some unit tests, you think you're done, and two weeks later something blows up spectacularly and you realize, oh, I did not consider this case, let me add some more unit tests. So your, mm -hmm. your cultural heritage in some sense, I, I think about this a lot because organizations, uh, the bureaucracy, and governance of organizations is usually dictated by past failures, past blowups. And if you're not careful, you become an oppressive bureaucracy because you're, you know, the reason that you can't form your own organization without getting five signatures is because one time in 2008, <laughs> something yeah. stupid. Right. Right. <laughs> and so um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that scar tissue can both prevent you from getting cut again, it can also prevent you from listing and doing and moving. And so, um, I don't know, there, there's a great tension between, like, you know, if you take this to its limit, uh, the data are so well manicured that um, nothing can change. In other words, the perfect unit test would be the identity function. That, you know, it, it has to be this data. But then again, and now all progress has stopped. So there's something between the Wild West that we have today and the um, nothing is ever allowed to change ever that is the right medium is, is dancing the the edge of the knife so that we can i guess both make progress but not dig ourselves so much technical and data debt that we we don't understand what we've done right and i think one of the things that i've been uh kind of realized during our end of season three kind of epiphany was that uh, the right unit for thinking about is an ecosystem in, in that you have ecosystems where like there may be organizations that really want to go for the pristine, like tie everything down. And like people should be allowed to pursue that experiment. Boy, it gets dangerous is when they sort of impose that on everyone. And you need to have people sort of uh, working on different degrees of precision and sloppiness because, you know, those are adaptive in different contexts. And the question is that if we at least agree, is sort of, uh, um, is you have sort of like gap is, you know, the generally accepted accounting practices, which is a monstrous piece of lore, 
but like there's a noble intent behind it, right? And you know, one of the things that I work on quite a bit is this is in my spare fantasy time is that like a lot of accounting, for example, is all this weird lore that's piled up over the years because of all these different failure modes. And what's tragic to me about it is it's encoded in fairly verbose, dense, impenetrable English when it seems like 90% of it could be implemented in code if anyone bothered to think in those terms. Um, and, but yet, for some reason, we, we, we tend to want to hire lots of finance bodies and whip them into conformance rather than actually building robust systems. But that's another startup. Um, but the idea, anyway, yeah. is this vision of um, giving... So we want kind of like uh, multiple layers of standardization you know, that are evolving. Like, you know, this is the layer of the data. This is the, uh, this is the data. There is the standards for how we describe data. And then there's standards for how we describe the standards, right? And the idea is that the, the, what you want in an ecosystem is this ability to um, argue and diverge, right? You know, like web, web is a great example. Like we sort of agree on the web, but then we had WebKit and then we forked it. And the idea is that forking is good uh, because it's necessary to allow evolution. But then having that shared lineage means that, okay, I know that before this date or these terms, uh, you know, and, and there's always going to be some human that has to make a decision that close enough is, is good enough for this use case. But the idea is that if we can get, you know, more things, in, like everything is still readable, right? If we can get our base parsing layer resolved, which we haven't yet, um, but if we get the base parsing layer resolved, okay, at least we can agree that we will parse things this way and we can have a universally readable format. And then depending on the lineage, we can say, okay, in our lineage, we you know, use these words in our cultural context this way. And it was derived from this other cultural context that we shared. And so we know that sometimes that's going to work fine and sometimes it's not. And that's just the human condition, right? Is that we don't know if this circumstance I'm in is actually the same as the circumstance you're in. But if we at least have a immutable history of our lineage, we actually can at least um, have a chance of making more reasonable choices. And mm -hmm. this is an interesting question. I think the point you made about culture is that um, right now, culture is primarily mediated by, well, originally culture was mediated by spoken word and physical interactions, right? That was the only culture we had. Um, and then, you know, around 150 years ago, we started getting recordings. Well, so I guess, you know, 6,000 years ago, we got writing. That made a big difference. Um, and then, you know, a couple hundred years ago, we got recordings and transmission. And now we have all these other ways that culture spreads, like the meme. Like my kids think about memes as just an ordinary part of their everyday existence. I remember when that was a radical new idea people were kicking around with philosophers and evolutionary uh, biologists. And uh, the idea is that, well, what if we could actually, like even in just the smallest, I mean, really what you're doing, Anish, when your company goes in, into a uh, organization, you try and do this sort of, um, I've been using the word partition, right? You try to partition it into these little tribes, which have a carefully controlled vocabulary that they all understand with each other. And then you try to reconcile that into a um, organizational wide schema of some kind. Um, is, that, is, that a, is, is that a 
plausible way to describe what you're trying to get, is what people end up doing when they're using your tool? Yeah, there well, there's a couple really important distinctions here. So, so that what you're talking about is this concept of life cycle or staging, and you know, it it is basically what it says is that we can have a a wild west or raw area where you know nobody needs to know anything, and it's it's a very free form. You can do what you want. So this is stage one. Stage two is the refined area where hey, human beings are interacting with this data. We're thinking about it. We're adding context. And then stage three is the curated or trusted phase. So the first thing that we can do is the kind of the sandboxing, right? So that it helps people not to feel restricted, point number one. And point number two, it creates a shared etiquette of, hey, there are different levels to the temple. And I, I chose that word deliberately and I'll come back to that in a second. But first, just to give people this concept that, okay, there, there's a place, it's very much how you socialize kids, you know, don't, don't run inside the house. Yeah. Uh, and it, it said, hey, when we create areas where, where activities are accepted or where the cultural norm is towards more structure or less structure, people are now free to be themselves with the data, but also realize that there are a set of rules that govern each stage. Mm -hmm. the, the religious overtone, by the way, Ernie, while you were talking, all I could think about was heterodoxy and orthodoxy. And the, the trajectory of both database administrators and IT has very much been a power struggle where the DBAs and the IT administrators held the keys to the kingdom and mm -hmm. they uh, they did not allow any unwashed any of the unwashed masses to come <laughs> into the temple. Now, the, the benefit of this was that things were somewhat under control. The drawback was that they were deprived of enormous amounts of data, right? And so I would think that you know, I think humanity is still very junior in its consideration of structures that are larger than the family, which is really what we're talking about. It's like, how do you build higher and higher social mm -hmm. granules? But that's this dance journey that you were talking about, which fork and merge kind of formalizes. It's like, hey, you know, we, we are going to be the heterodoxes. You know, we're going to break off. We're going to have our own set of rules. We're going to have our own religion. And then in time, yeah. one of two things happens. Either, either one or more of the branches dies or there is a subsequent merge down the road in the future. And that is the single most important contribution of Git, by the way, is that branches or forking the lineage should be a very cheap operation. Yeah, I love this idea of, this is forking humanity, it's in the title of the podcast, right? Is that you should be, is that um, it should be a cheap thing to fork a lineage. Um, and there should be strong cultural pressure and this is this is a tuning problem, right? You want there to be uh, cultural pressure to avoid gratuitous confusion um, that you know ends up causing uh, greater answer. But like, I guess like, like the, 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 you want you want to try and design the system so it allows uh, individuation where you can split off and try new and different things in limited scope cheaply with low consequence. But that if you have an appetite for risk, you can invest more in that branch and as you demonstrate its value you can attract attention and people can in fact this is how a competitive market works right mm -hmm. um you know the way that the pc market exploded and that you know having the right standards at the layer and the interesting idea is that the reason these things tend to go bad is because uh what happens is is, is i guess we call it the rockefeller solution right is if you don't have coherent standards for things you can get very suboptimal systems and an emperor can come in and impose structure on 
the system and make it run far more efficiently. I mean, that's basically the definition of fascism, I think. And the interesting yeah. question is, uh, this was the hypothesis that we were playing with. Like, if you had a system, an ecosystem, where all the Christians said, hey, we want to compete with each other, but we also want our ecosystem to outcompete all the other ecosystems. What if we just all agreed that we're going to make all of our core data transparent, immutable, again, following sort of best practices for data management, assuming such things exist, and then we stop living in these competitive silos, but we live in this sort of data ocean, right, mm -hmm. where we are, where we have like this common, uh, you know, delta sharing kind of protocols for how we discuss stuff. And then possibly in a future show, we talk about, you know, the data for governance, right? Like is being an employable organization, you know, equivalent to saying I have these read rights to this data and being a manager means I can write who is and is not an employee, right? And can you actually, by just being really clear and transparent about your data, still allow innovation, experimentation, whatever, but allow you to participate in this open data ecosystem that uh, gets rid of a lot of the insanities and inefficiencies of um, uh, both top-down bureaucracy and mere anarchy. Datocracy, right, is rule by data. <laughs> The rule by yes, some, and I, uh, common rule by agreeing on data conventions, if you will. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, one of my things is to in a, in organizations. Right now, we have you know a single leader, and the you know they uh, you know the CEO or or whatever they make these decisions for the entire company, right? That you know depending on the leader, maybe the leader you know, uh, did some research and ask opinions and, and did that. But at some point, all leaders have to like decide, uh, okay, I have the information that I need or maybe just partially, but I need to make a decision and they make it, right? And, you know, sometimes the entire company is is, is opposed, opposed to that, but because the leader has ultimate decision-making power uh, to regulate that and then, you know, sometimes the decision pans out and sometimes it doesn't it depends on the leader you know you can see this in steve jobs you know he his career uh, he had decision making power and but some decisions were bad you know uh, after you know later in his life when he returned to apple uh he had all that experience that you know he did ever you know since he was a teenager when it comes to design when it comes to appreciating beauty you know he had all that in his head so that he can make uh, or he and his team, right, can uh, create these products that we love um, because of the way they feel, not for what they do, because, you know, I have an Android phone and I have a, an iPhone, but I love holding the iPhone more than I ho love hold, more than I like holding the uh, the Android phone. Uh, in some in some cases, the Android phone seems like, oh, it, it's trying to copy Apple, but they couldn't get it all the way. They couldn't you know, uh, finesse it enough to make it um, effective and efficient. Uh, sometimes Apple, because they want to do the perfect thing, they wait and they wait and they wait, right? So, you know, that's why people uh, uh, say, oh, okay, Apple is going to have iPhones with, um, what is it, almost uh, always 3D. on space. Sure. And oh, yeah. the Android people were like, 
really, you know, they had we had that for years, right? But maybe you know, Apple just waits until they can see who's winning, and then they can you know copy that, and then and then in addition to that, they have to troubleshoot it, and then uh, you know, I guess uh, have it tested for a long time until they're sure that it's good. So you know, you can uh, when it comes to Apple innovation. I think it was a mistake when I was at Apple, but right now it's, it's just not. There's no innovation there. It's just like waiting until things settle and then they do their thing. But like, okay, oh yeah, this there's, there hasn't been another iPhone-like thing since, you know, in, I don't know, what, 15 years? Nothing. It's just keeping it iterating on the iPhone, blah, 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 the iPad too. Then now coming, coming back to the Mac because they want to have... Uh, like a mode as uh yeah they're moving to this uh, multi, uh single os type thing they, they're not going to say it but that's the way that you see the mac going Curtis, i think we're losing the uh the narrative thread and the details here oh oh yes so uh you're talking about how okay, so. the, the the danger of organizations you know and that's i think part of the danger when you have a single dynamic leader at the top you know they can mm -hmm. make sure that yeah. there's enormous progress in a certain direction but there's also a danger that when they're gone or someone else is in charge, that you can get drift. Um, yes, and, and, and exactly. this idea of a That's... fractal, uh, yeah, and I think what the alternative being like the idea of a fractal organization. Whereas, uh, you know, I think you uh, you probably know more than I do, and he's about the theory of the firm, right? And the idea that mm -hmm. in the market there's this like single metric which is sort of price that determines what goes down, but within the firm. There's this sort of homogeneous uh, control where, you know, in theory, nothing is really based on price. It's all based on culture and relationships or top-down control. And can we imagine a world of a more fractal nature where the decision, the data structures, that's the interesting thing about a, a firm nowadays, it seems like it's, it's largely defined by a unified uh, system of data and decision-making. Mm -hmm. and, and the, uh, the market is defined by the absence of that. <laughs> now that yeah, and, and the, the data arguably is centralized to some extent, and I'm just thinking of, of features like Google Shopping or just the tremendous amount of comparison shopping that the internet enables. But there's also, there are organizations and there are organizations. Some tend to be more monolithic. I, I think of, of Google and Amazon, and I think that they probably, well, the negative dimension of this is fiefdoms, the other is what you're calling a fractal organization, that they really want that. In other words, that they know that scale and deep organizations, large org trees destroy innovation. And so they try and just race a bunch of threads, um, not necessarily competitively, but let teams run. And I think we can come back to, to the main line, I think that you're trying to get us on Ernie by saying that the job that team leads and CEOs have that they never knew that they had is to merge these branches. And I guess, in, so, so that's the job that they actually have, they never knew that they had. And ostensibly governance becomes a lot clearer when I have this vision of the CEOs having to fly on gut instinct a lot. Number one, mm -hmm. maybe we moneyball, we moneyball CEOs and say, well, actually, here's all, <laughs> these are all the racing data branches and threads in your company. And, and, you know, we use some kind of level of detail to say, okay, these are actually the high level issues and considerations. These are the competing ideas. So the CEO has this job. And then the, the, I guess the competing concern 
is that if you don't have enough branching going on in your company, which you know, may or may not have happened at, at Apple, uh, and I guess there, I should bring up this fundamental structural factor. There are only so many iPhones to discover, so I don't even know if yeah. it's reasonable it, for for one company to right. to keep reinventing itself. Um, yeah. In but any there, case, yeah, yeah. The, the danger, by the way, I thought about this a lot, is, is that what if the danger is that Apple has nothing new to contribute to the world and it ends up sitting like a big toad and just siphoning up money to perpetuate itself, right? Like, I don't mind if Apple still can 30% of the App Store revenue if it's going to create something fantastic and new, but if it's actually going to just sort of bloat, that would be bad. And it's hard to mm -hmm. predict these things, but that's one of these um, conundrums. Anyway, random, random side, Apple side fact. Keep going. It's not random. So this is the paperclip problem in AI, and that's that if you <clears throat> if you pursue a perverse objective function or you give an AI <laughs> a perverse have objective you heard the function, then... Have you heard the paperclip thing, uh, Ernest? Yes. Okay. But for okay. our listeners, right, so, right the uh, idea that yeah. if, you give it, if you tell an AI to make paperclips, it's sufficiently smart, yeah. it'll turn the entire world into a paperclip production. The entire uh, universe. Thing. Oh, the entire universe. Yeah. Like every, every, yeah. It's done when every atom is, has been molded into paperclips. And, yeah. and, 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 and you, you have heard, you must have heard Tim O'Reilly's claim that we've already invented rogue AI. It's called Wall Street, the financialization yeah, of the economy, true. right? The idea is that if we only have a single um, metric of success, and we give people massive incentives to optimize that one thing, they will obliterate it. And so this is the interesting thing. What if, and I gotta leave this and go cook dinner in two minutes. Um, what if we could change that metric? Um, let's call it the Amazonization of the economy in that the role of the CEO is to sort of define standards for how we communicate between entities. And then that gives us a sort of a commonly readable substrate that's thicker than money, uh, but, but thinner than top-down control. And we could um, enable, you know, like I think about like some of the horror stories you hear about what happens on YouTube. And you think, well, part of the problem is that the bad guys have lots of incentives and ability to find bad things, but the good guys don't have any ability or incentive to stop that. And like, what if, you know, you think about, you know, if their algorithms and their data sets were transparent and then people had to register what they were doing and why the good guys have this incentive to say, well, yes, I'm going to do this good thing and this is the data for it. And the bad guys have a disincentive to be earnest about that. And that earnestness asymmetry, ooh, there's a fun word, uh, becomes the thing that you used to tell the good guys from the bad guys, because the more public and, you know, there are certainly cases uh, of the converse. But you would think that, that that seems to be like the, the sunlight as the best disinfectant tool. And you sort of have a, a Bezosian say, like, you know, you can do whatever you want, but you have to publish the data of what you're doing using these open APIs, protocols, and standards, which are governed in an open, transparent process. And if you fork it, you have to fork it in an open, transparent process. Mm -hmm. uh, that feels like uh, it gives us more, um, it's a different way of organizing things. Um, than sort of the extremes of central planning or Hayekian, you know, com compressing all the data. Because, like, what if I actually knew all the factors of production uh, going in? Then I don't actually need a price, right? I could the the, the, the right is, is that the uh, knowledge of the raw materials and everything. I could sort of uh, 
sort of uh, choose my own price, right? I could say I want to weight the environmental and ecological and, you know, conflict factors differently because why, and that's what we've done, right? We've created ad hoc standards around these other things that we care about, uh, which is a horribly brutal, painful, top-down bureaucratic process. What if there was a way to make that all so cheap? And that's kind of the, maybe I'll leave that as kind of the challenge um, for you, Anish, uh, for our next personal conversation. And you're welcome to join us again in the future. I don't want to inflict too much on you, but this has been fascinating. That you know, the, the thing is that this idea of data reconciliation, right? Like I get the better of you, you know, it, it, there's one hard problem seems to be like saying, you know, blowing the whistle and say stop in the bar brawl, the data brawl. And let's partition you into subgroups, which are reasonably homogeneous and coherent, and have you guys figure out your own data sandbox. Um, but then the second thing is the sort of the, the data harmonization piece or orchestration, whatever the right term is, how you fit things together. But in some ways, the hardest thing to my mind is actually the guy who blows the whistle and says stop, is like, what does it take to actually do that effectively? What are the preconditions? What are the qualifications? What are the failure modes? And it's kind of, when you look at it that way, it's like, you know, people can, you know, go to school for seven or 12 years to learn how to munge the data. But if you want to learn how to get other human beings to munge data wisely, you're kind of thrown to the wolves. And can we actually Mm. create a discipline of data reconciliation, which is like, you know, like in the old wide wild west, the surgeons, you know, the guy who was willing to stick a knife in somebody would be the surgeon because there was nobody else there. And now we make people go to a, you know, 11 years of schooling before they do it. Can we imagine a world where people say, well, you know, the most important human problem is helping human beings from different subcultures learn to communicate and collaborate. And that is the thing we want people to, you know, build up a competency in and study all the best practices and worst practices. And then we design our human systems to enable that. I don't see any reason why the world can't be that way. It won't be perfect but it seems like it would be a, a quantum step ahead of what we have now. Mm-hmm. And I guess the asset the test one... for my philosophy is if I can sell you on the idea that maybe there's something other than price that we can use to organize an economy. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm afraid to say anything because we will open many hours more of conversation, but I'll, I'll let's make it a mm-hmm. Uh So, so the first, I guess, so this goes back to Ludwig von Mises, who's kind of the original Austrian economist and he was Hayek's teacher and mentor. He argues, and we can dissect this argument later, that uh, a central planner can never compute the exchange ratios and the values precisely because they don't know the price of anything. And he called this the economic calculation problem. And it is one of the things that make efficient distribution from central planning impossible. Uh, So one cliffhanger there. And and the second one is there, I think what you're, this, the concept of data reconciliation, I guess the first, my first thought is that the, you know, the one thing we probably can't teach in school is courage. But if, if you read Switch, it's the Heath brothers is what's coming to mind as the author. But in, in any case, they have a three-step formula for change. And, and what they say is you, you need to calm the elephant. So you address the emotional side of people. You calm the elephant. So first of all, they, they argue that you should model the world and people as an elephant, which is their emotional side, a rider, which is their rational side, and the path, which is where you want them to go. And so their, their procedure for how you get people to stop and to change is you first you calm the elephant, which is their emotional side. And, and Ernie, as you and I know, 
data can be very emotional and the process of generating reports and getting different numbers when you're preparing for IPO is very stressful. So you calm the elephant, yeah. you address the rider, you, you deal with the rational part and you illuminate the path forward. And, and maybe I like that. I, I, I like that way better than your first version of the comic book. The elephant oh, the rider in the past. Ah, interesting. Okay. Well, may, maybe there needs to be more about the untaught skill, which is maybe this is not a technical problem. It's a human problem. And it takes a lot of courage. And, and I guess what I would like to ask you, and this can be our parting thought, is uh, all I could think about while you were talking is why don't we have to convince developers to use source control? It's just it just happens, and you mm. would be an insane. Mm -hmm. well, well, no team. Why, we, why don't we anymore have to? <laughs> oh. I okay, you're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> so you know what? <laughs> I remember my computational physics class, which was an extraordinarily complex project, emailing files back and forth to people and begging people to mm. use RCS, which wasn't even a shadow of Git. So you're right, Ernie, and and maybe we need to look at how code turned that corner. And in the end of the day, the only thing anybody in an organization should believe is results. And I think part of this distributed system is we should be able to create cells of success or bright spots that then the organization can model. And I think that is a local tribe where the meaning and the structure and the data quality is sufficiently aligned, where the rest of the organization can clearly see that they are moving faster and better than everyone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, Ernest, you get the last word. Oh, oh, oh thank you. I hope you have two words. Uh, I, have, uh, I have two thoughts. Uh, replaceable leaders. Uh, leaders should be mm. replaceable. Very easy because, like you said, we the data is 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 a, is a role. You don't have leader. You have the role of leadership today. Next month, we pay somebody else. Why? Because everybody in, in the organization has the same values. They have the same access to the data. So, you know, when you choose, okay, you, you uh, uh, lead today and you, you lead tomorrow, they have basically the exact same information, uh, but systematized, right? So, you know, something happens to the boss today, well, okay, just, I, I just do the job. And, and their decision maker, the decision making should be easy, right? Because it's, it's, they are uh, held to a higher standard because once you make the decision, it's going to be part of history and you're going to be tied to that forever. So you need to make, a very good decision uh, based on what you have, right? So that's one thing. Another thing is a hybrid composite communities. This is Amazon's enemy. If you have communities, right, that can just because they follow the same system can scale or descale depending on what they're trying to do, Amazon is dead. So for example, you have a bunch of businesses in a community, in a, in a city, uh, if they can access each other's inventory data, they can provide great service to customers. And let's say, oh, this this this, uh, this person which or this community with, with a lot of money, they're buying a lot of TVs, right? Okay, well, we can't fulfill all that. So let's, okay, then come together with the uh, other city, you know, and make this regional uh, kind of ad hoc community that says, hey, uh, Samsung, we have an order for whatever, you know, the more TVs you order, the cheaper they, they are. So uh, you can put all, the, all that together so that, you know, um, we compute a way to get the cheapest TV, even cheaper than Amazon can get it. Because uh, this, uh, let's say a half a state becomes Amazon for, for, for that state, just because of this uh, linkage. 
and they can um, outbid or whatever uh, Amazon does to get low prices. They can do that uh, easily just because uh, for this particular case, they like, oh yeah, we need a we need a whole lot of TVs and we have to source them for I don't know many many places or one place, whatever. But you can smartly create this thing that Amazon cannot replicate because Amazon, you know, they can move fast and things, but they cannot replicate the local adherence. So I'm a local and I want to support my local businesses. So instead of just going to Amazon all the time, I'll just go uh, to that business's webpage, which is generated out of the common data. So we can, you know, a community can say, oh, I want to be a store and, you know, they get the whatever software that every, everybody has access to, by the way, and it's free. I want to, uh, you know, deal with the software, give it my information, and I have a store. Done. And then if if uh, you put together all the communities like that, then this hybrid community, oh, they have a store too, a store of all the things that people in communities can offer. So, and this is just retail, you know, there's, there's other things that we can address. But by having a common language, common data, and transparency, and accountability, you can do all kinds of things better than Amazon can and and still satisfy people because they see their neighbors or the, the city uh, uh, you know across the bay whatever and so they're thinking locally but functioning um as a big organization that's the All right. terms that I wanted to All right I will leave that thank you so much Anish I uh, would love to have you back anytime you're interested and uh, I will talk to you at other venues soon my pleasure. Ernie, yeah, need... good to talk to you as always, and Ernest, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Right. Bye, okay. Ernest. Bye, Ernest. Bye-bye. Okay.